What's up Kyle? My name's Tanner Smith. I'm from Vancouver Island. Just getting back into my work week here after a weekend of surfing and soaking wet alpine hiking. I uh, drive a lot for surf, usually more than two hours each way and often only day trips so I listen to a lot of podcasts and yours is one of them and uh, yeah man I really like it. I really like all the focus on mental, physical, and environmental health, and I like hearing about uh, you and your guests' philosophies on life and uh, hearing the different perspectives. I am uh, coming up on four years sober here and uh, definitely has changed the way that I look at the world and, and the way that I want to impact it, and yeah, I really like hearing a lot of your your guests philosophies and yours as well and yeah i really appreciate it also just bought some mud water haven't tried it yet pretty stoked for it to get here keep it up buddy dope podcast uh i'm just gonna keep on listening have a good one tanner smith thank you so much for sending that in my man glad to hear you are listening from vancouver i have yet to make my way up there but would really love to one day Speaking of mental strength, at about 3 p.m. every day, I get an insatiable craving for chocolate and ice cream. And I can't do anything to stop it. And just about every day, I eat myself into a coma and then am uh, totally useless until about 5 p.m. when I regain the strength to uh, stand back up um, out of the puddle of my own blood urine and chocolate ice cream and go on with my day. I don't know why I brought that up just now, but maybe it's to say that the, ha- the mental strength, maybe, is, it's, maybe it's less about willpower and more about design uh, because I should just design my life so that I'm not near chocolate at 3 p.m., um, I read a really good book that I recommend everyone check out uh, called The Power of Habit. And in it, he, th- this author, Charles Duhigg, talks about how most of what we do throughout the day is unconscious. When you get out of bed in the morning, you will automatically put on one shoe before the other. But you're probably not even conscious of what shoe that is. Or uh, you ever drive to work and then you just arrive there and you have no idea how you got there? It's, it's because your, your default mode is running. Um, and that's really effective for us because um, it makes us not need to think all the time uh, consciously about our decisions. But if we have bad habits, like my chocolate addiction at 3 p.m., um, it can throw us for a loop. So what he recommends is that you switch out the bad habit for a good habit. So when you get the chocolate craving or whatever it is, um, you have something in place. So rather than, than reaching for the chocolate, you reach for an apple instead, or you decide to uh, go for a run. My mom told me a while ago that she, uh, before... I was born, she smoked cigarettes, and she got herself to quit by, um, by qu- she, she quit, and then every time she craved a cigarette, she would go for a run, and she would get that endorphin high through a positive habit. So go mom.
I have yet to achieve your mental fortitude, but I will try one day. Uh, I want to send a big thank you to Douglas for becoming a patron patron this week. Um, high five, dude. I really appreciate it. Um, I rely on donations um, like yours to keep this podcast going, and uh, it means a huge amount. If any of you have an extra five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, whatever you can spare, um, it really does help. So head over to my website, kyle.surf. Um, and make a donation if you value this podcast. If not, just keep listening. Um, I have one sponsor on this show. They sponsor each and every one of these episodes. They are called Santa Cruz Medicinals. You guys know them. You guys love them. They make potent CBD products from coconut oils to pain creams to a CBD nootropic. And you can get 10% off on all of those products by typing in the code name KYLE10, all caps, at scmedicinals.com. They're also just super cool because they don't really give a shit how I talk about their products. So they're like, hey, if you want to talk about this for five seconds or a minute, just do your thing. Um, and I mention them a lot, but Brendan, their founder, was the guy who got me to start this podcast about four years ago. So we are all forever indebted to Brendan Rue, also a past uh, guest on this show. You guys, uh, tickets for the Motherfucker Awards go on sale on October 15th, and they're going to go very fast, uh, I have a feeling. So mark that on your calendar, and on October 15th, go to MotherfuckerAwards.com and get your ticket. The show is on December 3rd at the Miracle Theater in Inglewood. So if you think that you want to go, I highly recommend uh, going on to the Motherfucker Awards on October 15th and getting your tickets. You can also sign up for the newsletter um, right there, and you'll be notified first the second they go on sale. But we're only selling about 300 of these things, um, and they're going to go fast. I can't guarantee it, but we got some amazing presenters lined up this year, uh, and I'm really excited about the show. We're uh, It's starting to get into the fun part. Where we're figuring out all of the um, dirty, maniacal jokes that we're going to play on some of the biggest uh, polluters and um, motherfuckers of the year. So it's going to be a good time. Uh, final thing, uh, we are looking for a couple volunteers for the show. So if you are in LA and you could um, are willing to donate your time um, either the day before the event and the event or just the day of the event. We're going to be like selling merchandise at the after party and we could use some more bodies, um, people who are willing to take direction and can just help out um, the night of. Most people are volunteering um, with this silly project. So if that's something that you have the capability to do, send an email to info at kyle.surf. My guest today is a badass waterman. Josh Humbert arrived in French Polynesia at age two and is thus deeply connected to Tahitian culture. His lifelong love of the ocean has led him to work in pearl farming and underwater photography as well as spearfishing. Josh's work in Tahitian pearl farming is infused with his passion for the sea and its creatures. After 27 years in the industry, he is just as excited by his work today as he was on the first day he started. He was one of the first non-Japanese pearl technicians in French Polynesia and the first person to incorporate concepts of sustainability in the Tahitian pearl industry. His family, family farm, Kamoka Pearl is known internationally for its progressive methods and beautiful pearls. 
His start in professional photography began by shooting photos swimming in the lineup at Chopu. We talked a lot about the pronunciation of Chopo, Tahiti, where he resided uh, with his family for 11 years and still has a home. He is currently represented by National Geographic, where he brings his storytelling ability to a wider range of photography work. Josh is a current world record holder spear fisherman, and his love for and ease in the water infuses his work. His images have appeared in magazines, books, online, and online for over a dozen years. Um, he's a fucking badass, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Please welcome to the show, Josh Humbert. Here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. John, thanks for coming on the show. Josh. Josh. Why did you say Josh? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and we start again. Josh. Why? <laughs> Sorry, Josh. It's all I, good. I you never met me before. I never That's met you normal. before. I knew it was, it was, a, it was a four-letter J word. <laughs> That's, you know, I do a lot of in-depth research for my guests, as, it, you, as you might yeah, know. Yeah. You know, Tyler, it's totally cool. <laughs> Dude, a lot of people call me Tyler. Have I ever told you this? Have I ever talked about this before? I have like a running... <laughs> theme in my life where I'll say, hey, my name's Kyle, and they'll be like, Tyler. Like, I guess I look like a Tyler, but I don't know that Kyle and Tyler sound that much alike. But it was like, the universe should have named me Tyler. Four-letter word with a Y. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's it's like, like Josh, white, John, you know. Yeah. Like a white surfer name or something. <laughs> like, if my name was like Lamar or something like that, they'd be like, okay, all right, that that's different than Kyle. But, uh, Sweet man. So you're uh, down here, uh, but but living in Oregon mostly. Hmm. And are you getting to spearfish a lot while you're in Oregon? A lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Okay. Even from Portland. Yeah. It's about a two-hour drive to the coast, hour and a half, two hours. Okay. And what's the diving like in uh, the coast there? It's kind of the opposite of Tahiti. It's um, it's really cold. It, uh, it's dark, um, and uh, it's usually pretty rough so we have to really kind of cherry pick the days hmm. um it's kind of hit or miss but uh it's amazingly vibrant there's so much life and um it's uh it's just really cool like um like one, one problem that we contend with is krill you know like my, my my whole life i've heard about whales eating krill it's like oh what is this krill thing you know it's like oh lots of little shrimp but like yeah, so that, that's one thing you can experience is krill. Like sometimes you can't spearfish because there's so much krill. There's just life just abounding, and it's it's uh, it's really cool to see. Probably a lot of fish around there, though, right? A lot of fish. Yeah. So you're kind of contending with the lack of visibility with krill, and probably there being a lot of uh, fish that want to eat that bait. Yeah, exactly. So we're you know life begets life. Um, so there's you know the the rockfish are bigger up there. The, you know the, the lingcod are big and numerous and um, lots of cabs on and, and, you know, other, other yummy things too, different kinds of shellfish that we get. And How big do the rockfish get up there? Um, I've seen them to eight pounds, which, um, you know, it's just 
pretty big for that's rockfish. big for yeah we have a lot of rockfish right out here right. uh i mean diving just out front our, our house here it's mostly rockfish lingcod and a few cabazon but right. um santa cruz it's all um uh, i guess sandstone bottom Mm-hmm. So it's really easy for it to get churned up if there's any swell in the water. Yeah. And then usually when it's dead flat here, it's a summer day. So there's a lot of, um, like it warms up and then the water gets real green. Right. Uh, so going down south is where like Big Sur area, there's a lot more, um, I guess, the granite bottom and the water's a lot more clear down there. Or how about north? Um, people, a lot of people dive north, uh, spooky, but yeah, I, I know a lot of serious Santa Cruz divers that go north quite a bit. Um, and I've gone up, uh, to like Mendocino area to do abalone diving, Mm -hmm. um, because they have the red abalone up there. And this last year, uh, they made it illegal that they just totally outlawed um ab diving so i i was there last weekend there was a uh spearfishing tournament uh, the triton x um i went down with a, a group of uh, th- three other friends and um yeah um there's no more you can't take abalone any, anymore um and uh i don't know if your listeners know about that um but so basically um a number of years ago i think it was about five or six years ago i want to say there was a big uh, sea star die-off. Um, all the sea stars basically on the west coast um, uh, died. They all just wasted away like like, uh, like they had acid poured on them. Like their, their arms would just kind of fall off. And, um, and, uh, and so basically the, the predators of the, the urchins <clears throat> um, <clears throat> disappeared. And, uh, and so the urchins started to reproduce and... Uh, they just kind of went crazy, um, and they they reproduce in such uh, amazing numbers that they uh, they basically they're eating all of the kelp um, on the on the west coast. Um, uh, that said, I just drove down from Marin County um, this morning, and I saw that you, you guys have uh, lots and lots of kelp still. So that was really really good to see. We have a lot of kelp. We also have a lot of sea otters here in Santa Cruz. Ah, okay. So sea otters will take down uh, urchins in right. numbers, but uh, I I believe that the there are way less sea otters up north. Yeah. Um, because basically none. B- yeah, basically none. I I don't know the exact population numbers, but um, yeah, those things got all taken out for pelts. I right. I think in the early 19th century. I could be wrong about the exact mm-hmm. years, yep. but uh, now that you can't get abs up north again people are kind of like well wait should we just reintroduce otters that would then potentially cause a tropic cascade and you know eat some some urchins and allow the abs to come back yeah it's funny the urchins they're they're all um they're all competing with each other too so they're all they're all starving so you have all these urchins that are uh, malnourished and like if you break one open there's there's basically nothing inside it's a it's a, it's a skinny urchin wow um and i've seen it all the way to uh to Alaska, I, um, I've done a couple of spearfishing trips up there, and and uh, yeah, the, there's rocks that look like they've been pressure washed, just nothing living on it whatsoever, just perfectly clean granite, um, and just urchins crawling all over. Yeah, wow, man, yeah, I got to do a, a trip. It was over a year ago now uh, with my buddy Gunner up to Mendocino, and we went ab diving, and it's just such a fun trip, man. That whole coast up there. Um, you know, it's, it's such a different experience than 
spearfishing because you just go, you're going down and then you got, you know, your, uh, whatever it's called, the measuring tape. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so you're just finding all the abs that are big enough and like going down and then, you know, you finally get one that you, that you want. And they're so strict up there about like, you got to tag it and label it while you're in the water. Like, which is nearly impossible if you don't have a kayak. Like, you need to go out there with a pen, label when you got it, uh, where you got it, and then you come in and, yeah, those, the the wardens up there will get you. Because there's so many people poaching uh, abalone up there. But, um, yeah, we had a blast. We, We got a couple and then all the campsites were filled. So we just bombed up this, like, fire road somewhere there and then camped on the side uh, of the road. And the next morning, we woke up and we had a little camp stove and we had some eggs. So we made a big uh, abalone scramble. Oh, so good. It was so good. Um, but yeah, that was the last time I went went ab diving. Um, so hopefully they open it up because yeah, it's a real resource, man. It's such a beautiful animal, too. Yeah, they might never open it again. I mean, you know, that sounds kind of doom and gloom, but diving last weekend, we, we saw just dead abalone everywhere. Um, shells. Um, you know, I, I, I go down there pretty much every year. And, um, you know, you used to see abs stacked on top of abs, like so many abs. Like if you just get below the, the 25 foot mark, like down to 40 feet or so, there's just abs everywhere. Like they're like, like, like a checkerboard and, uh, man, it's not that way anymore. Huh. And there's no kelp. There's just no kelp. I didn't, I didn't see any sing, any, uh, like growing bull kelp at all. So it was really good to see it here. How did that affect the fishing for the tournament? It was good. That, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem to affect it. Um, I'm sure it will in in the in the long run, but um, the fishing was good this year. For, for people who don't know, how does kelp uh, impact spearfishing? So it it, uh, it creates habitat. Uh, it creates habitat. It, it creates um, sort of um, calm water for for small fish to to hold in, um, and uh, and also light for sure. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna block a lot of light and and what how does that impact fish? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know about light. I'm, I'm not. It just makes it easier for them to hide. Is that? Yeah, I mean, point, right? yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit out of my, <laughs> my, my depth, so to speak. Um, I get it. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, uh, fish need habitat. You know, they they need places to uh, to, to hold. Um, so if there's just nothing but open water, um, yeah, I imagine it'd be challenging for them. Yeah, and how'd the tournament go? Great, actually. Yeah, yeah. Our, our little Oregon posse. I think we had uh, four guys in the top ten, and, and uh, yeah, it went really well. Rad. We got some nice fish. And are you going for? Uh, is it biggest fish wins? How do those tournaments work? Um, all tournaments are, are different. Um, this one, uh, it just it was a, an individual contest. So like you, you know, you you, uh, you hand in your individual fish, and you can uh, um, you can have five five fish so basically one fish from from five different species um but uh yeah it was um so we we basically went down four of us and and uh we we made two teams buddy diving like one up one down um and uh we were just talking later and we were saying that it would have been so much better if the contest was judged by 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 teams you know like you hand in one stringer um so that the whole contest takes you know 50 percent less fish and and it'd be safer, and it just seems like it would be a smarter way to, to do a contest. So, hopefully, there's contest organizers out there listening to this. Right. <laughs> um, uh, what kind? Of, what kind of depths were you going to? 
Um, we weren't going super deep, um, not past uh, 60 or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for cold water, that that's for me, that, that's really deep. Uh, well, it gets really dark down there, right? With these kinds of conditions, like I would imagine that because it's there's so much sediment in kind of like California and Oregon waters. Like, yeah. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, for <clears throat> sure. Nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, but so you, did you get most of your spearfishing experience out in Tahiti? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I lived in Tahiti from uh, from the age of. Uh, I mean, I, I lived there real young when, when I was a little kid. We we arrived there on a sailboat when I was two. Um, my dad's French, mom's American, and uh, we lived there until I was uh, about seven or so. And then uh, parents split up, lost the boat on the reef. Um, my dad stayed there. Did, did they lose the boat out on the reef, and then they're like, "We're out of here." This <laughs> that was the night of the divorce. Um, well, kind of actually. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's just like sort of like great metaphor. Yeah, like like yeah, everything uh, was well in paradise, and then it wasn't. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it was really challenging at the time. There was no um, there was no airport on the island, the atoll we lived on. So, getting supplies like um, my mom was telling me that like I was a little kid, I, I had jaundice and like. You know, I was all yellow, and like, <laughs> I mean, it was. Uh, <laughs> don't you cure jaundice from sunlight, though? I don't know. Really, I, I always thought that that was. Uh, it's like the baby disease, and you set them by the windowsill. But maybe okay. that's some kind of urban legend. I don't know. I didn't have jaundice. Yeah. I had Tyler. <laughs> You're John. I'm Tyler. Uh, <laughs> um, so then, where'd you move from uh, age seven on? Um, so then we moved back to, uh, to America with, with, uh, my, my mom and my brother. And, uh, and then from then on, I'd spend the, the summers in, uh, in Tahiti with my dad and then the, the school year in, in America in, uh, Northern California. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, then in, uh, in San Francisco, you say? Yeah. In Marin County. Okay. Nice. Um, what a stark contrast between Marin County and Tahiti. Yeah, um, not as stark as Portland and Tahiti. Yeah, <laughs> um, just as far as sunlight and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. You, you gotta like really train hard for your tan in Tahiti because you know it's not gonna last for the rest of the year. Um. So then, so so it was, uh, San Francisco, Tahiti, and then um, pearl farming. Right. So um, my dad stayed in in. In, uh, in Tahiti um, for, for all those years. I mean, he's French. Um, and uh, he started the Pearl Farm with my brother in 1990. And I went down to visit in uh, 91, 91, 92, um, just, to, just to hang out and, and, and help, help with the, the new business. And I kind of uh, heard my calling. And uh, I always wanted to study marine biology. And, um, and I basically found the opportunity to study it firsthand. Um, I just I wasn't made to sit in a schoolroom and have someone talk at me. Um, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, so I, I went to to college down here in Santa Cruz, uh, Cabrillo College, but uh, I spent my time surfing more than anything. I'm so happy when I hear those kinds of stories of people that recognize that they're just not good at learning while sitting, and they organize a life where they can move and learn. Uh, I think that that. That's a major issue for a lot of people, myself included. 
because I just could not pay attention while sitting. Like For even sure. now I can ingest information from a book better if I'm walking. Like it just something about moving while learning allows me to hold that information in my mind a little bit better. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So you were so your dad uh, started this pearl farm out on this atoll right. in Tahiti. Right. So I, I was 21. I was in the middle of college, and um, and uh, I ended up not going back to college and staying for 25 years or whatever it was. Um, and uh, together we we were some of the, the pioneers in the in the Tahitian pearl in, industry. So that was really fun. It's still really fun. We're, it's still sort of like a, a frontier land. Um, there's a lot to, a lot to be done. A, a lot of uh, a lot of research that's still waiting to, to be done. So, what is a pearl? So, um, a, a pearl. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I've never been asked that. I think. Um, great question. Um, a pearl uh, is um, a secretion of, um, of, uh, um, basically, uh, uh, aragonite. Um, uh, calcium basically um and you know the the uh, common idea is that it's to uh it's it's to uh, uh cover you know cover some some sort of irritant um and basically we, we have steinbeck to to thank for the the myth that uh that um you know the the grain of sand got in and created this big lustrous beautiful pearl um when actually that that's essentially never happened like pearls do not make or pearls are just not made but by sand. Um, oysters are really, really well equipped to handle sand. Um, in fact, I have a, a friend who's a pearl farmer down in Mexico. Um, shout out to Douglas McLaurin. Um, and he, he took some oysters and uh, he, he, he actually stuffed them full of sand. <laughs> and uh, no, no pearls. <laughs> um, I always thought that pearls were made from sand. Right. So what did Steinbeck write that contributed to that myth? Well, he did, that was just uh, um, the book, uh, The Pearl. Okay. Which I never read it. Um, Got to read it, Kyle. Okay. What's it about? <laughs> um, it's just a really beautiful tale of, um, of uh, you know, it's uh, the this, this story of this, this fisherman, this poor fisherman who finds this, uh, this giant pearl. And um, it's just a story of how the, the pearl basically um, ruins his life. Mm. Um, and it's sort of like epitomized or it symbolizes greed and, and, um, and, uh, covetousness, I guess. Interesting. You know, I had a, uh, these guys on my podcast a couple months back that, um, make these surfboards out of reclaimed wood. Uh, and they had, uh, this guy reach out to them and, and they're these really beautiful, um, boards or they, they, they'll put uh, abalone shells in them. Mm-hmm. They're real big like art projects, right? And um, they had someone reach out to them and say that they had found, Ste- they'd traced Steinbeck's ship um, from one of his famous books. I haven't read any Steinbeck. But what? Yeah, do you know, what? what's the book where there's this famous ship that is going along California? I'm sure someone's just screaming it out to to us um, right now. There's the, the, the Log of the Sea of Cortez. Log of the Sea of Cortez. So they found that boat, okay. right? And they said, hey, the, the, the boat has been you know, kind of derelict, but you can use wood from this if you want to put it into your surfboards. So, cool. so they've made a series of these special surfboards with 
uh, wood from the log of the Sea of Cortez. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a little block of wood uh, from the engine room that still sm- smelled like gasoline. Right. And because I'm totally ignorant and have never read any Steinbeck, I was like, oh, this is cool, right on. And then my housemate, uh, who is an abalone scientist, she's actually up in Alaska right now studying pinto abalone, and she's a major Steinbeck fan, was, was talking about Steinbeck. And I was like, oh, you know, I have this piece of wood from the ship of the log of the Sea of Cortez. It was like... And she lost it. Oh, she lost it. I mean, it was like the equivalent of me just being like, oh yeah, like, you know, here's a uh, huge treasure chest that I have no value for. <laughs> like, here, here, like a treasure chest from the Goonies or something <laughs> like that. Like she lost it. So one of my favorite things is to give gifts to people who will find more joy right. f- uh, out of them than I will. Cool. I think that that's like a, that's like a, you know who Marie Kondo is yeah yeah she's such a good it's it's a good like philosophy though of like bringing if you can pass an item forward that will be used better and there will be more joy derived from it absolutely it's a good philosophy on life because if you don't the alternative is that you just start hoarding shit and then when you die your kids got to deal with all of it <laughs> anyway that was a tangent woo here we go um, so pearls are not made from sand. So, I mean, it's probably happened. Yeah. Um, but the way that, that pearls, uh, the, the way that natural pearls come into being is, um, uh, a parasite, usually, um, uh, kind of a worm actually bores through the, the shell and then the, uh, the, the, the mantle, just the organ that secretes the shell, it forms a little depression and it, and it catches the, the, uh, the, the intruder and then it entombs it within its own flesh. Whoa. So, yeah, so basically, like, pearls are about an irritant, but that irritant is usually a living thing. Um, so, like, if you, if you cut a, a natural pearl in half, you're going to find the decomposed remains of, uh, of a worm, usually. Wow. Not, not, uh, not very sexy, but yeah. it's, it's the truth. Yeah, don't tell the girl who you uh, <laughs> got the pearl necklace. You're, you're basically wearing a decomposed parasite. <laughs> so that, that, that's true for natural pearls. But, okay. Yeah, but like for um, for pearls that are cultured, like like what we do, um, you're introducing a, um, a, a nucleus, um, like a little marble, in the first graft operation, usually between like six and eight millimeters. Huh. So um, pretty small, but not that small really. Um, and then also you need to introduce a piece of um, tissue from a, a donor oyster, uh, and the tissue comes from the the mantle, which I mentioned earlier. Um, it's what it's what builds the, the shell. So then the the stem cells in that um, they they multiply and they'll they'll eventually um, cover the the nucleus that you put in and then and then they'll deposit shell on it. How do you introduce it physically? Um, so you yeah uh, you have to uh, crack the, the oyster open um, and and as a technician the the smaller the space you can work in the the better your your results will be. So. You're always like kind of fighting um, these two kind of uh, opposite needs. One is to be able to see, and and the other is to, to do a good job. Um, and uh, so, yeah. what you're saying is, pearl farmers will eventually become artificial inseminators. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they could put that on their resume. Yeah, I well, guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, doctor, <laughs> I've, I've inseminated many pearls. So you, so it's a that is. I'm kind of picturing a very small little pebble that you are putting in there. So it's so eight millimeters is not that small, really. Okay. Um, 
That's like the size of a pea, basically. My dick, too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. Um, yeah, so like the, the size of a pea, basically. Um, <laughs> okay. And then, right. you, and then you, why do you need tissue from another pearl? Is that the, basically the, the parasite that the primary host will then re- try and reject and calcify? Um, no. Okay. So the, the, the uh, tissue is, is what, um, is what you need to deposit shell on the, on the bead. So basically like a better way to to think of, of, um, how a pearl is made is, uh, to think of a, uh, a skin graft, right? Like, um, um, you know, you, you get in a, in a motorcycle accident, you lose half your face, um, and they, they take skin from your ass and they, they put on your face yeah. basically. So it's those those cells that are taken from one place, they're put in another place and they go to work in that place where you put them. So that's basically what we're doing. Does that make sense? It does. And I've never thought about this. So I love learning about okay. it. And are you uh developing these pearl farms out in the ocean? Um, so there's there's just one pearl farm. Okay. Um and yeah, it's uh we you know, we work in the in the natural environment. Um and uh that's that's the fun part is that we we intersect with the with the natural world um and we're actually able to uh to impact it in, in positive ways how so um i i think starting probably the most obvious is that we're we're uh, we're returning um oysters to the to the wild um basically uh around the turn of the century there was there was a big market for uh for shell buttons um there isn't any more because they're made out of out of plastic typically um, I mean, there, there's still a market, but not like it was. God, thank God for that plastic. Yeah, right. I'm so happy. I mean, there's just so much better than real shell <laughs> buttons. I mean, now they have plastic that's made out of oil, which is way more sexy because it comes from deep underneath the ground. Yeah, oysters it, are just, <laughs> just fucking shells from the ocean. Sure. I mean, and and I I, uh, I understand that that you're joking, but at the same time, like, um, it sucked, you know, like um, because of the, the demand for for shell buttons. The oysters everywhere in like in any country that has the the species we work with was destroyed. Really? So like they were basically removed from the ecosystem. Wow. Um, and uh, and so so pearl farming uh, everywhere, it's helping to to bring back the uh, the uh, natural stocks. Wow. So yeah, there's there's uh, there's there's so many things like like that that gets lost in the whole like vegan dogma of of oh you're you're hurting these animals. Um, but so that would be basically the, the the first and most obvious way that um, that we can that that we are sort of uh, positively uh, impacting the environment. So you remove the pearl from the oyster, and then you re- you can release it back into the wild. Is that the process, or how does how so, does that work? Uh, well, I'm just talking about oysters, not Sh- sorry, not, not not pearls. Sorry, um, that's fine. <laughs> Continue. Um, so the the. Uh, um, yeah, so, so basically when, when the pearl is harvested, um, unlike, uh, um, Japanese pearl farming or Chinese pearl farming, um, we, uh, we don't kill the oyster. We, we gently extract the pearl and then replace it with another nucleus. And then the following year we get a, a much larger pearl of about the same color. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's the fun part. And actually I'm going back in November and I'm pulling out, uh, a bunch of second graphs, and and uh, I'm really excited about it. What do these pearl farms look like? Um, not much. 
basically like you don't need much uh, above water. You just need, um, it could even be a really simple little shack. Um, uh, all of the, the space that gets taken up is, is in the water. Um, and uh, if you could take all the water away, you would just see lines and lines and lines, maybe, you know, 50 yards apart and like spanning to the horizon kind of thing. Um, and so, so basically to, to get back to how, how those oysters are repopulated, um, th those oysters, they're, they're at, at the perfect level for um, optimum uh, feeding, um, oxygen, uh, everything. And uh, we, we care for them. You know, we, we look after them. We, we make sure that, that they don't get eaten by predators. And, and, um, and they're also in, uh, in, in close proximity to one another. So they, uh, they, they, uh, they have a really, really uh, uh, successful um, uh, reproductive cycle. So basically what that does is that, that then like reseeds the, the, uh, the lagoon. Um, so How do you protect them from predators? You have to put them in uh, in baskets, basically. Got yeah. it. Yeah, and that, that was, that's kind of another uh, interesting uh, story. Um, years ago, we didn't have to. We could just um, put them on uh, what we call a chaplet, which is a, just a string, um, and you know we um, we just hang them out, and uh, they'd grow really well, and um, they wouldn't foul up uh, very much because there wasn't much for the the fouling to cling to. What does foul up mean? So so fouling is the is the uh, is the uh, the pearl farmer's number one problem, and it's basically like all of the uh, the marine organisms that live in the water, they uh, they come along uh, with the current, and then they, they look for a place to settle. So, um, like if you if you leave your your boat in, in the harbor, the, the the hull will get covered in barnacles and and uh, you know everything basically. You'll you have crabs on it, shrimp. Uh, um, different kinds of uh, sponges and enemies, like everything, um, and so that's what happens to the oysters. So that's that's like our our biggest problem. Um, uh, so how do you guard against that? So, baskets, right? So no, so so basically the 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 baskets uh, protect the um, the oysters from the predators, and the predators are uh, mostly um, triggerfish. We, we have these uh, giant triggerfish, um, and uh, what do those look like? They're just a super gnarly fish with a really incredibly powerful jaw that doesn't look at all like a like a fish's jaw. It looks like the, the teeth look like pig teeth, um, basically. Um, if, if you see the the jaw out of the mouth, it's just this this crazy looking thing, uh, and they can they can snap a, a shell and a half no, no problem. Um, and then we have uh, sea turtles, uh, green green sea turtles mostly that that really do do a lot of harm. And then, uh, thank God the plastic's helping with those. That's right. Yeah. Take, taking them out. Take those things out <laughs> one straw at a time. <laughs> protect, got to protect the oyster farms. Um, <laughs> the tropic cascade, plastic is at the top of the tropic cascade. <laughs> They're taking out all the ecosystems, keeping it in check. That's right. Um, and also, uh, leopard rays, like big, uh, big giant leopard rays. How do those eat the oysters? They're so, they're, they're so big that they can, they can take like a, um, a mature oyster, which is, you know, like maybe six inches across. They can take it in, in, inside their mouth. I've actually seen this happen. They can take it inside their mouth, twirl it around with their tongue to taste, to, to see if there's any, any of these, uh, these parasites that, that bore through the shell that, that weakens the shell. And, uh, if they taste those parasites, then they just, they just chomp down on the, on the shell. Um, 
but they're just they're just really big animals and they're uh, really powerful. Wow. Um, so they they do uh, they do lots and lots of damage. Um, so that's the, that's what the baskets are for. But the the baskets basically um, they're super problematic because they um, they collect fouling like nobody's business. I'm sure. Yeah. So basically, like everything that's floating along, like it just it settles onto them, and then that basically um, keeps the uh, the oysters from uh, from feeding and uh, and breathing. What do they feed on? What do oysters feed on? Uh, plankton. Plankton. Yeah. Uh, so um, phytoplankton, um, and uh, you know they're they're filter feeders, so they're they're just little pumps. They're just like little pumps that run through just uh, uh, what what's the stat like. Uh, 100, 100 liters, uh, uh, I'm going to say something stupid. They, they filter a ridiculous amount of water. A lot of carbon as well. I've, I just watched uh, a documentary that I recommend everyone check out called Ice on Fire. It's Leonardo DiCaprio's new movie about climate change. Surprisingly, I don't want to say inspiring, that's a strong word, but he goes into a lot of the biggest solutions that are happening to combat climate change right now. Mm -hmm. And he visits a kelp farm that is also um, using oysters. And they were throwing out some stats about just how much carbon the kelp and the oyster farms can sequester uh, in a single day. Um, Another side note tangent, if you feed cattle kelp, uh, it can reduce their methane output by 90%. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. Yeah, all the cow farts. And they, we used to feed uh, coastal cattle kelp um, frequently before we switched their diets to corn. Right. Uh, subsidized corn? Subsidized corn. Oh, yeah. GMO corn. From Shout out to all my Hawaiian friends <laughs> who know all about that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? In Hawaii, there's... Um, None of none of those GMO crops are for human consumption; they're all for animal feed. Yeah, it's nuts. Pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it makes sense that you know Hawaii imports ninety percent of their food, so yeah, why <laughs> makes good sense. Makes good sense to me. Um, so, how long does it take to grow a pearl inside an oyster? Um, so basically, the uh, the oyster um, we have to grow for about three years um, before we we seed it. Um, so before we've even really touched the oyster with, uh, with any kind of, um, grafting tools, um, the oyster is already three years old. And then, um, uh, it takes about a year, year and a half for the, for the pearl to grow. And we can shorten that time a little bit if we're able to, um, to, uh, just really, um, really be on top of the, the cleaning. The cleaning's tough though, because in two months you basically have, uh, have considerable growth on the, on the oyster and the baskets. Hmm. Um, so basically what that, um, what that leads me to in this is that, um, the way that, that we deal with, um, with, with cleaning the oysters and the baskets is we, we bring them into the shallow zones, um, that are, that are either at the farm or, or near the farm. We have these, uh, these underwater platforms that are like spider webs and we just, we just hang a ton of oysters there. And then the fish that just occur naturally in the lagoon come around and, um, and they clean them up. And, uh, to me, like, it's just like, it just makes me happy thinking about it. That's and, cool. And it's really cool because what, um, what happens is, um, there's basically a fish species that corresponds to every kind of fouling. You know, you have your, your butterfly fish that, uh, that, that pluck out the anemones, the, the little like baby trigger fish will come and like chomp off the hard shells, like along with the, the, uh, the, the parrot fish, um, 
you know, and on and on and on. Um, there's so so much uh, fish biodiversity, um, and and all of those fish correspond to to something that, that we're bringing them. So basically, by 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 cleaning the, the oysters and the baskets this way, um, we kind of raise up the whole reef. Like all of the the fish species get stronger, and and uh, where 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 we farm now, there's considerably more life than there was um, before we got there. So we're basically um, uh, we're helping to uh, to reverse um, the overfishing, basically. That's so great. Yeah, it's it's so great, and and it's something that I mean, I get like you're like mobsters stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. <laughs> you're like the modern day Robin Hood of the ocean. <laughs> I've never been told that. I, I uh, I'm gonna run with that. Though. Run with it. <laughs> run with it. Uh, but yeah, gallop I mean, ahead with the horses. Yeah, to me, it's just it's just really really exciting that okay. that we can. Um, that we can kind of go beyond um, the whole like um, the whole like catchphrase like sustainable like everybody wants to be sustainable but what about regenerative isn't that more exciting than sustainable like like sustaining Im- implies like staying at, at the status quo whereas um, what we're able to do is actually um, bring life back and I think that that's it's so rare in any any industry that you have the the opportunity to do that um, and uh, I'm just uh I just feel really um lucky to um to be able to share that with the world. Yeah. I'm all about degenerative systems. <laughs> I like I, that's that's kind of my legacy. Like I'm all about like what can I take now? I want to be remembered for all the <laughs> toys that I acquire and like I want to make mother earth remember me, you know, like Clearly, yeah. by like being afraid of me. That's yeah, yeah. that's my legacy. Um <laughs> uh, so you then remove the pearl, and I, I see you have a pearl on your neck right now. Is that what it looks like right when it comes out of the shell? Yeah, we don't um, we don't process the pearls. We don't do anything to them. We just um, we uh, we drill them and uh, and um, and mount them. Drill them, and then you put it through uh, that leather. Is that what kind of leather is that made out of? So this is a uh, kangaroo leather. Um, comes from Australia. You clearly. monster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's cool. Um, so the the cool thing about kangaroo leather is that um, is that they're they're wild animals and they they uh, they call them uh, every year to keep the wild populations in check. Um, uh, this is what we've been told um, by the people who sell us the. Whatever <laughs> 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 you can trust him. Don't ask a barber if you need a haircut. <laughs> yes, these kangaroos. There are so many of them. But um, but yeah, so basically, it's a it's a wild animal. It's not a cow. It's not a, it's not sheep. It's not um, uh, you know an animal that that is um, that's taking up uh, precious farmland. Um, and they also they're they're not uh, big um, uh, contributors to 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 the, the ozone uh, depletion um, because they're they're basically giant rats, right? Um, and because of that, the uh, the muscle fiber. Um, Runs in this kind of like crazy chaotic way, and so it means that um, that the it's just really really strong. It's thin, but um, it's super strong. Uh, that's why they make like soccer balls out of it, and like and fancy Italian shoes, and um, it's like uh, along with uh, uh, with salmon leather, which is my wallet is made out of. Um, it's really like one of the the best leathers in the world, if not the best. Wow, so cool, man. Um, do you know much about the history of pearls and pearl farming i mean it's something that's 
uh, I've really never thought about. I've never owned any pearls, but they're revered as this, you know, very precious. Right. And, um, and why? 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 Because they were the first gem. Like, um, think about like cavemen, right? Like sitting around, like eating, eating, um, kangaroo. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, eating eating shellfish, right? And someone uh, someone spits a, a pearl out, and then you know they have this like lustrous, beautiful thing that came from the sea. And the male's like, <clears throat> and gives it the female. Then he gets laid, and he's like, this thing is worth something. Yeah, or maybe the female gives it to the male. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that was that was good. Could maybe it was a mostly male thing that that uh, people were wearing back then. Anyway, um, that yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of that. So that was it was the first gem. The first gem, and um, and so basically, um, uh, humans' fascination with with pearls um, devastated the oyster populations around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a big, a big run on pearls in the, in the Americas, you know, that, that's, uh, that was why, uh, Columbus came over, um, for pearls. Yeah. One, one of the main reasons he came over was, was for pearls. Um, and, uh, I thought it was cause he couldn't get laid over on that side of the world. He's uh, like, I'm finding a new world. <laughs> Someone will love me over here. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, and so basically, all this, all this uh, need for pearls really, really wiped out the oysters of, of the world, um, and and that's what's cool about pearl farming is that we're uh, we're helping to bring it back. That is very cool. Yeah, to be able to have have your work be connected to something that goes back so far um, is a cool experience. It's not like you're coding a website, you know, or something that is. Uh, is new to this generation. I, I really enjoy um, doing things that I know people thousands and thousands of years ago were doing as well. Yeah. There's something very human about it. Yeah. I, and um, I find that a lot of people that engage in those kinds of activities, um, whether it's surfing or hunting or spearfishing, there's a kind of calm that it can give you a kind of just experience of being human that um i find i find to be consistent among those kinds of people yeah yeah i mean i don't think anybody was farming pearls ever except for in this century um but uh yeah definitely the experience of of pearls is is a very very ancient thing yeah um, so where do you sell most of your pearls? Is it uh, online and uh, then people can buy them? And, and, yeah, you know? yeah, we, we have a website. Uh, uh, is the tagline, it's better than blood diamonds? That's right. <laughs> it should be. It should be. Kamokapearls.com. And yeah, my wife and I run it. We're a two-person show. We do everything, all the communications, social media, we make the jewelry. Uh, I do all the photography. Um, yeah, it's a it's a lot of work, um, but it's what we love. Yeah. And when did you get into surf photography? Uh, I got into it in uh, 2008. Uh, we were living in in Chopo, um, and uh, um, I got to know the the. Cote. Let's cover this. Okay. Chopo. Okay, Chopo. Not Chopu. No, Chopo, Chopo, Chopo. Okay, not Chopu. No, <laughs> Chopo. Okay, do you want to know why? Why? Um, there's a there's an apostrophe. Everybody misses the apostrophe, right? Po. So there, it's O apostrophe O. Um, 
and what what's basically confused this this subject um, so much over the years is that there's been um, friends of mine, uh, Tahure, uh, Raimana, Michelle, that that have um, that have tried to explain how to pronounce it, and every time they they pronounce it um, as if they have uh, their their grandmother standing uh, just just behind them that's about to uh, to give them a uh, a uh, you know a, a slap on the head basically. Right. Um, and they say teahupo, which is absolutely correct, um, but that's not how it's pronounced um, in Tahiti. Like nobody, nobody really pronounces it that way, except for maybe old people. Um, there's a common way. Um, like, uh, like if you want to say hello, um, uh, you you would say eaha tehuru, which means uh, literally, what is the state? Um, but uh, um, but you know you slur it together and um, uh, it comes out like churu, uh, uh, um, <laughs> um, uh, like it, it it all gets like gets like really really uh, abbreviated basically. Hmm. Um, so the the uh, the t often t- turns into like a a, a ch sound. Um, so teahupo um, becomes chopo. Huh. And so there, there never was any poo in it. Poo is just um, poo. Basically, I, I, I uh, blame my, my, uh, my, my neighbor in, uh, in Jobo, uh, Chris uh, O'Callaghan. Hey, Chris, what's up? Um, he's Australian, and I think Australians sometimes don't see punctuation very well. <laughs> uh, I've had to fix the way that I say Hawaii. Nice. But you gotta, you gotta nice. get that. There's the apostrophe I. Right. Yeah, I've noticed that's another one. If you're living in Hawaii, you, 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 you don't say Hawaii. Right. Definitely not. Good, good. It's yeah, it's important to to do that. I think that being impeccable with your word, uh, especially when you're in a different culture, shows a level of respect. Exactly. That is very important and especially important if you're a white dude. Exactly. So it's an and such an easy one as well. Uh, like if you know it, eh, just work a little bit on your pronunciation. I get that you're a California surfer and you never learned how to really enunciate because you know, you're from California surfing on the beach and you don't really need to open your mouth when you talk. But dude, just enunciate a little bit more. Everyone will appreciate you for it. Right on. So, uh, 2008. So what's it like surfing Chopu? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Nah. Um, Chopu. Chopu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I started, um, I, I started shooting photos in high school, um, and, uh, I got really into it back then and, um, uh, but then kind of, kind of, uh, hung it up and, and, uh, years later, um, we moved from Ahe where the Pearl Farm is out to, to Chopo. And, uh, this was, uh, 99 when we moved there. And so it hadn't really like, uh, blew up yet. Um, and, uh. And and so then this contest started to happen, and and every year I'd see these guys coming from as far away as South Africa, you know, Pierre Tosti from South Africa, um, and then all the American guys and European guys um, posting up, and uh, you know, paying eighty dollars a night for accommodation, and then they're you know the three hundred dollar for the boat, and um, just all these expenses, and so I was like, well, this is stupid. Like I live here, um, and uh, so I I should be doing that, and so I. I sort of uh, I, I got into it um, thanks to the to the Cote brothers, uh, Justin um, and Chris. Yeah. I've had Chris on. I love both yeah. those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Justin really kind of uh, c- 
kind of kind of gave me gave me my, my chance and um, and uh, yeah started started shooting a lot and really enjoyed the the in water stuff. So you were shooting a lot for Transworld at the time. I was yeah. okay. Yeah, they were they were such a great magazine, man. Yeah, definitely definitely missed them. They definitely had a a younger more uh, more kind of a, a fresher vibe. Well, I'll also tell you, you know, being a c-grade pro surfer from santa cruz coming up when i was at age 17 having a magazine and just having people like chris and justin that were like oh dude you're doing something kind of interesting and different uh let you know stay in touch let us know what you're into meant so much to me and nothing against any of the guys at the other mags but i remember those those guys being especially cool, especially interested in surfers doing alternative stuff, new stories. They they just looked at the whole thing with a little bit different prism that I thought was important for the whole industry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you were shooting out there, uh, shooting water. I'm sure you got some crazy stories shooting water out there. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I got barreled over Kieran Perot once. That, that was pretty exciting. Um, I was shooting and... and uh, I, I got kind of greedy and and swam in a little bit uh, a little bit too far to 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 uh, to, to really kind of uh, sync up with them in, in the barrel and I, I carried too much momentum and so the wave uh, grabbed my feet and uh, threw them up over my head and did a full a full 360 and uh, this is while while Kieran Perot's, uh surfing right right under me um, and I landed all my feet on the reef and you know s- snapped my fins in, in half and uh, but I, I landed solid and straight. Um, and I just landed with such an impact; it was uh, it was absolutely terrifying. Yikes! But uh, I was fine. I was totally fine. But if I land, landed on my head, it would have it would have gone like a like a watermelon for sure. I've never surfed that wave, but I've heard that there is a size when it's small to medium, mm-hmm. when it's even more dangerous, and it's more likely that you'll hit the reef. Um, it's not about the size; it's about the direction. Hmm. Yeah, it's not. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it. Um, you know. I've surfed it, you know, like double overhead plus, um, and like a point break hmm. and, um, like the best point break you've ever surfed. Right. It's just in and it's like, so what are, what are the directions that shift the wave and how does it look different? So the, the more West it is, the, the, the heavier and more, more dangerous it is. Like the, the contest that was just there a couple weeks ago, it was really West and that was, a, that was, there were some crazy waves, really crazy. Um, so like y- you can serve it small. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it it can even be like uh, shoulder high and terrifying, if it's too west, um, or it can be you know well overhead and just super crazy fun. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how do you try and line up with people as a photographer sitting out there? Because um, is it easy to get sucked too far out because the wave has so much power and momentum pushing out? Like how what what's your mindset like when you're trying to position yourself out there so um i i always wear uh like goggles or or a mask so so, so i can i can watch the reef and and whatever watch watch the fish when, when i'm not shooting um and uh i always line up with like a, a coral that, that i know kind of thing um but uh and that, that puts me exactly where i should be but then sometimes uh the surfers um get pulled out of out of uh out of the, the, the spot where they should be, um, for, you know, for, for the best part of the barrel. Um, and then, uh, and then I have to adjust to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it just, it really just depends on, on what the conditions are like. Um, 
what's it like having the boats be so close to the lineup? Um, for I mean, if, if you're shooting uh, in the water, that it's definitely you're you're nowhere close to the boats um, unless you're shooting with, with a, a long lens, which which I don't. Um, so and, it's not really an issue because I'm I'm only going from footage that I've seen of that wave, and it seems like there's a lot of boats that are getting real close to it and always kind of chalking for a better position. Meanwhile, yeah. then they're barely making it over the next wave. I was just wondering what it's like actually being out there with the boats. Yeah, there's been some spe- spectacular wipeouts, uh, boat, sure. boat wipeouts. Really? <clears throat> yeah, boats going over the falls and and like everybody jumping overboard and like there's even like video footage of like cameras like flying in the air and just like <laughs> just like definitely uh, nightmare scenarios. Um, but uh, yeah, you just that that's another thing. If you go to Tahiti and you go out to Joe boat, you um, yeah you want to choose a, a boatman who, who's good. Um, there's there's a couple. Uh, taxi boats that are, that are really good um that are uh you know that are online um that are they're easy to find but if um if you get hustled if you know if you go to the end of the road and like someone's like hey 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 like come come uh come come in w- with my boat um that's usually not the boat you want to be on right do you spearfish that wave yeah absolutely um and that's actually how i got into photography um or how i got my, my first camera um uh I, I, uh, I know every inch of the reef and like, um, on all sides, uh, outside of it on, on the ocean side, inside, like on the, the, the lagoon side, um, uh, fished everywhere there. And, uh, years ago, uh, Mike Prickett, um, uh, do you know who Mike Prickett is? Yes. Okay. But for people who don't know. Yeah. So he's a, a filmmaker from, from Hawaii. Um, uh, very, uh, very successful. Um, he's done, uh, just so much amazing work. And he was out there shooting um, with uh, with Mark Healy, and uh, Healy towed into this uh, into this wave with with Prickett's camera, um, and uh, and he he went down, and he had two straps from from his camera uh, to, uh, to to his wrist, and both the the, the leashes broke, um, and uh, he lost the camera, and uh, and so Prickett uh, put out a, a, a reward for the for the camera. Um, and uh, and so uh, Mark came over and he's like, yeah, uh, Prickett lost his camera. He, he put out a, a, a reward for it. Uh, I think I know where it is. You know, I think it, it uh, you know. The, the <laughs> Would Mark get the reward if he dove for it and found it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was open for anyone. <laughs> That's funny. And so so he was like, yeah, I think it, you know, it, it hit the reef. It probably flooded. And it, it's probably in the crack, like maybe like, I don't know, 60 feet out or, or something like that. Like just sitting in the crack, just waiting there. And like Healy you know, what, what do you know? You're, you're, you're Hawaii guy, uh, <laughs> uh, which is really fun to be able to say to Mark Healy. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I, I thought that it had probably flooded and, uh, gotten pushed over the reef and it was probably just sitting just on the inside of the reef. And so the next morning I, I went out, uh, um, to see if that was true and to just whatever, um, look, look, look for, for some fish. And, and it was exactly where I thought it was. It was so rad. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I brought it back, and uh, this is um, this is post ni- or pre nine eleven, um, uh, and uh, I gave I gave Healy the the, the whole housing, um, which was uh, full of salt water, um, and uh, Prickett had, had said, uh, yeah, wh- whatever you do, if if it's flooded, um, keep it flooded because there's film in there, and film the first thing you do, as you surely know, is you do a, a, a a saltwater bath, right? 
And, uh, and so, so Healy had this, this housing full of salt water with a camera in it. And somehow, he still never told me the story, but somehow he was able to fly back to the mainland with this camera on the plane. Like, how crazy is that? It's like full of salt water. Full of salt water, yeah. And I mean, it basically looks like a bomb full of salt water. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now you can't fly with toothpaste. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and and uh, he got the camera to to Prickett, and Prickett developed the film. And um, for years, I mean, he, I saw him years later, and he said that uh, he's like, yeah, um, that that's still my my best footage ever. And wow. He he uh, he. Um, you know, he, he developed it, and and sure enough, it's so sick. It's basically like, you know, um, you know, it, it's all it's all it's all Mark's work. You know, it, it's Mark Mark's filming, and so Mark's yeah. holding the camera in the barrel. Yeah, he's holding the camera in the barrel, but this is a big freaking camera. So radical. Um, and he gets taken out, and the the cool thing about the footage is that um, after he loses the camera, it, it keeps filming, and so it it films him like like uh, um, disconnecting and everything. So it's pretty pretty special. But so so basically so then um uh Prickett was like okay well you found it great and so he he sent me uh sent me my, my first uh, real camera that's cool yeah and so that that's how i started and then you said huh i know this reef pretty well maybe i'll just sit out and you i'm sure have incredible breath hold times and you're comfortable in the ocean so you figured hey may as well turn the camera around and start shooting surfers yeah it was definitely the the natural I mean, I, I wanted the camera for that. You know, I, I smelled it. You know, I, I wanted to do the whole fisheye thing. And uh, sure enough, man, it's, it's so much fun. It's, it's a lot like spearfishing. You know, it's like it's all about setup. It's all about um, stalking, hunting, you know, being in, in the right place at the right time. And then, and then when the opportunity happens, shooting with accuracy. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, and, and uh, you know, framing and all that. Uh, um, Dave Troyer from, uh, from Transworld, um, uh, was my 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 mentor. I mean, he he still is basically. He's a legendary photographer, um, and uh, he helped me with you know framing and composition and, and uh, all those good things. Yeah, it's an amazing skill, man. Um, I'm friends with uh, Dominic uh, Mosco- Dom- Moscova. Is that what's his la- how you pronounce his last name? Uh, Mosquera. Mosquera. Yeah, Dom's yeah. a good friend. Yeah, Dom's great, man. He I've seen some of his work um, out at that wave, man. It's just. so impressive and i've shot fisheye a couple times um because my close friend ryan craig is a professional photographer chachi and uh he never made it look that hard he'd always be right in the setup you know we grew up surfing and you know pulling barrels and he'd just always be right there click 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 click. get good shots and i figured oh this can't be that hard i'm gonna try i swam out there with his camera and i was like this thing is fucking heavy this is like holding a cinder block and then trying to lift the cinder block up in the barrel and hold your wrist tight so it's not off angle at all exactly and not hit the surfer right then that's a reason why so many uh professional photographers professional surf photographers were bodyboarders beforehand i mean you can go down the list from todd glazier to daniel russo and they all had that early experience in the water i mean so they're a lot of times the the water photographers are better watermen than the subjects that they're that they are shooting. Yeah. I think that's true. It's uh, definitely true about about most surf photographers being bodyboarders. Yeah. Um it's you know what you were saying about uh Healy holding the camera in the barrel. Now everyone just has GoPros, but there was that 
window of time when you had a few of those surfers that were willing to take massive cinder blocks yeah. into the barrel with them. Anthony Walsh. Anthony Walsh, Brian Connolly. Yeah. Like when Brian Connolly was doing uh, My Eyes Won't Dry yep. and doing these step offs with a huge cameras, Ridic- man. Ridiculous. I mean, that's dangerous. Super that's dangerous. super dangerous. And now we just take it for granted being able to hold a GoPro in our mouth and get this amazing footage. It's yeah. it's a, a just crazy part of the industry that shifted like that and shifted so quickly. Um, I don't think that people really understood what was happening right before GoPros. Right. Um, no. Yeah, my, my first like really, really widely published shot was with Walshy. Um, and, uh, it was, it was cool. I, I was actually shooting a, a, a wide angle lens, which is not at all standard for that kind of photography. Um, it's, it's more narrow and it also can be kind of bendy on the sides. Um, but, um, it's what I started with cause I, I didn't know any better. Um, but I ended up getting this shot of him, um, early morning and it was just like everything just kind of came together it was just one of those magic magic shots dead flat horizon i didn't have to crop it or do anything to it whatsoever um framed just just how i i would like imagine it and i you know i i did like a i, I do a ton of like uh um I, I try to like like see things before i actually do them as much as i can and, and um and then he he basically had this uh this big big camera strapped to a uh a pole that was coming out of a, a like a, a homemade rig, a backpack that he had on, and so he has this like big camera hanging over his shoulder, and he got a shot of of me sh- shooting him. And I got a shot, you know, we, we had that that same moment, and so it ended up running in like six different countries, like all over the world, and uh, that was that was really special. Sick man, um, yeah man, I gotta make it out there. Yeah, you're you're just giving me FOMO with this whole podcast. It's, um, <laughs> Yeah, from what I hear, uh, Tahiti is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, it truly is. In in Chopo, like we we call it the uh, the photo studio because hmm. yeah, it's like you have perfect light, you have offshore wind, you have the clearest water in the world, uh, the best surfers. Like it's just uh, it's just an amazing place to to shoot photos. What's the culture like in Tahiti? It's really great. Um, I mean, I'm I'm really close uh, to it. I mean, I. I I grew up down there, so I, I feel, I, I feel kind of Tahitian. Um, I know I don't look Tahitian, but, um, um, it's just very, uh, it's just very friendly and, um, um, it's just a lot of, uh, people share things a lot and, um, I don't know, like what it's like that. That's a tough question for me. I feel like I'm kind of, you're so close to yeah, it. It's hard to see it. Yeah. I just, it's just, it's what I know. It's what I'm comfortable with. Like, everybody's generous everybody like you know like people always make too much food because they expect there to be like someone dropping by or like you know like there's just there's just this abundance mentality and um and i i've really like uh uh embraced that um and um yeah it's just uh people are warm i guess yeah abundance mentality uh i think is one of the most healthy mental frameworks to operate in for sure because when you have a scarcity mindset it makes you do shit out of desperation yeah and that's what ruins friendships and that's what makes you um ruin your life really and i think that that is um 
I think a, a mindset that is responsible for a lot of the destruction mm, that we see. Absolutely. And uh, when you, I, I think that the abundance mindset was one that hunter-gatherer societies had. Um, and as a result, there was no kind of, there was, I think, less malignant uh, behavior. For sure. Yeah. It's like, hey, there's enough. Cool, you're gonna do your thing. I'm gonna do my thing, but no one needs to like. I gotta prove. It. I gotta build the tallest building in the world at all costs, and we're gonna make it. And I'm gonna be so unhappy anyway. But, uh, yeah. What's it? What's it like for you to be shifting between mellow Tahitian culture and then coming back and living in Portland. the United States in Portland? Yeah. Um. Portland, you got a bunch of hippies and hipsters too. It seems like a cool spot. It's a great spot. Yeah, Portland's great. Um, it's a little too far from the ocean, for, you know, for my taste. Like, I, it's killed my my surfing. I basically don't don't surf up there. Um, there, you know, there there's definitely great waves, um, but uh, it just feels kind of frivolous to do f- four hours of driving just to go surfing. I mean, I do four hours of driving all the time, but it's to go spear fishing. Yeah, I, mean, I come home with you know with food I, I don't eat meat I, I just eat fish um fish and birds and um so we we go through a lot of fish um so that's that's easy to, to justify but do you uh, eat chicken yeah okay so birds you, right birds i guess they're a bird yeah <laughs> <laughs> they used to be i always anyway. thought they were a velociraptor <laughs> uh okay so, that, so that's not a bad life so then there and then uh when's your you say you're going out to tahiti in november yeah, yeah. nice yeah i'm going to africa first um I'm leading a, a tour for um, National, Ge- Na- yeah. National Geographic Expeditions. Why, this coffee is pretty stiff. Mudwater. <laughs> Mudwater, it's good stuff. Rock on. <laughs> uh, what's the expedition all about? Um, so uh, National Geographic, um, they do these, uh, these, these, uh, these tours, basically. Like any, anybody can, can sign up on it. It's like a cruise ship kind of thing. Um, and they always have like a, a token photographer. Um, so I'll be leading a tour um, from uh, Cape Verde to the uh, Bisagos um, Archipelago. Do you know the area? Yeah, I know Cape Verde. That spot's sick. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I've, I've seen some spearfishing from there. It looks pretty amazing. Yeah, really beautiful watercolor, and uh, it's a Portuguese um, colony right. uh, there. So a right. lot of real vibrant colors, and it's black people with green eyes, and. Cool. Uh, a lot of the houses on the streets are, are colored, you know, yellow and purple, and Great. it's an amazing spot. You'll really dig it. Awesome. Good windsurfing there. It's super, super windy. Okay. Not not a ton of great surfing, but just because the wind is so strong there. But um, I know, or I mean, uh, I, know, I know a lot of kite surfers that go there to, okay. to enjoy it. So you're going from, from there to where? The uh, Bisagos uh, Archipelago um, off of uh, Dakar, which is all like crazy fun for me because I've I have not been anywhere near there. Africa is such an amazing continent, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's just so unexplored, and there's so many good waves, and such... I just keep saying it again, but vibrant culture, man. Yeah. So you'll have a good yeah. time. Yeah, they, they've they only been um, independent since uh, 1975 or 77, something like that. Like Where where has? The, uh, the uh, Cape, Cape Verde. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it seems like, a, yeah, it used to be like a, a slave hub, I guess. Um, it should be, uh, yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah. 
Yeah, man. I mean that that history there. When you go to Africa, you you see it. We were talking about it earlier with like um, when you're farming a pearl, you can kind of feel the history involved mm-hmm. in it. When you go to Africa, there are certain areas where you can still see the the um, slave uh, jails, wow. you know, where they ship ship the the slaves off of the same beach that you're now surfing. Uh, and you know, a place like Liberia, where uh, you know, it's it's named the, their capital Monrovia is named after President Monroe, right? That all these slaves were taken from Liberia to America for hundreds of years, and then when they were released, uh, the slaves went back to Liberia to promptly enslave the Liberians using the same techniques that they were enslaved with. Wow! So you just have this history that cuts so deep, and you see it so clearly. Um, it's not as hidden as the slavery that we have in the United States. In the United States, we still have slavery, but we just lock black people up in prisons and get them to work for 60 cents an hour uh, and lock them up on nonviolent drug offenses, right? But you don't, most people don't see it. We do a better job hiding it. Um, I learned recently that uh, the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment to abolish slavery, has, um, I believe it's called an addendum in it, or is it an addendum where it's, uh, no person shall be slaved except in prison. Oh, Jesus. Right? Wow. So we still, we have an entire industry that is built on enslaving people uh, and getting them to work for practically no money. Wow. It's It's really dark part of our culture that we really that we don't tend to acknowledge and i hope in my lifetime we can reform because the the war on drugs and just how well it's hidden from your average you know white coastal surfer is um really breathtaking and um i do hope that that prison reform is an issue that we take on because I think that it's one that uh, we'll be judged harshly for from future, future generations. So what what uh, what candidates uh, coming up should we be voting for then? I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. Um, as far as prison reform, so some good news. Uh, private prisons were recently, there was a bill signed by Gavin Newsom to um, abolish private prisons in California, which will go into effect in, um, I believe, 2023. So the issue with, and I, I um, we'll get to your question of candidates, but um, the issue with private prisons is that it's an industry built on all of the wrong incentives. Mm-hmm. So private prisons will get contracts from states to house prisoners, right? And many of these contracts are dependent on beds being filled um, and length of sentence. So you have an industry then that's built off of incentives to incarcerate people and incarcerate them for as long as possible, right? So uh, the GEO Group is one of the largest private prisons in the United States. Um, they are the, the company that houses uh, three out of four um, immigrant detainees right now that have been in the news a lot, and they're getting huge state contracts to um, detain these people uh, while they're in prison. You know, they get them to work for 
on average, 63 cents an hour. Um, and the, the real gruesome part of this whole equation is that um, there is a lobbying group. It's kind of a pay-to-play lobbying group called ALEC. It's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Mm. And ALEC uh, is funded by oil and gas companies. They are funded by private prisons companies. And they write legislation that then they give to candidates um, or they, they give to, to um, politicians and get them to push that through, right? So the way it all works is that ALEC will, uh, is technically independent, right? So um, as, a, as a super PAC, they can run campaign ads uh, for a candidate to help get them elected. And um, the GEO group, which is a part of ALEC, has um, essentially, ALEC has written legislation that has gotten mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses passed. Wow. So if you look at that whole system, here's a private prison company that's part of a pay-to-play lobbying group that is getting legislation passed to lock people up for longer periods of time, right? So if, I mean, if there is anything uh, that is a true uh, incarnate of evil, I think that it is the private prisons industry. And I think that um, going back to your question around candidates, um, the most important issue that we need to solve in America today is money in politics mm -hmm. and campaign finance reform. Word. Because right now, it's very difficult to get a candidate to do anything for you unless you pay them. And right now, candidates are getting elected by corporations not directly because it's still technically illegal for corporations to give an unlimited amount of money to candidates. But since uh, Citizens United, which was a bill that passed in 2010, corporations can give unlimited amounts of money to political action committees, which are technically independent of the candidate, but not really because they're the ones that are paying for all the campaign ads. They're the ones that are essentially getting them elected, right? And then the politicians, when they're in time, when, when they're in office, spend up to 70% of their time just fundraising, right? Because election costs keep going up. So then while, they're, while the politicians are in office, rather than uh, spending their time doing what they should be doing, which is representing the people and what the people want, they are doing what corporations want, right? So I think that um, Bernie Sanders for is great for only taking small donations, um, and, and you see this as uh, that's one thing that's hopeful is that a lot of potential, a lot of uh, candidates right now are kind of running on this small donor platform, um, because if you if you're taking money from big corporations, like. There's just no way that you're not going to go and do their bidding, and a lot of these corporations are extractive. You know, they're they're companies like Exxon and Chevron, and what they essentially want is for the politician to do nothing while they're in office. They're like, just let us do our thing. Hey, if we pollute a few aquifers with some fracking, if we uh, melt some glaciers, if we have a few oil spills, we just don't want you to have any environmental regulations in place that's going to cost us money. And hey, if you can shave off some tax dollars, that would be great, right? 
But what happens then is you and I pay that bill, right? Society pays that bill. So I think that candidates that are not taking big money are the ones to go for because they're the only ones that you can actually trust. Mm. And if they're not doing that, they're just going to renege on all their campaign promises, right? So um, I think that Bernie, I think that Elizabeth Warren, who is pushing through a very comprehensive uh, reform package, is also a candidate that I support. Um, I did a podcast with a guy named Jason Haro, who's uh, an attorney uh, for an organization called Equal Citizens, uh, a few episodes back that... I recommend everyone check out if they want to learn a bit more about um, how this whole system works. And I think that the, the way the system is going to shift is um, maybe with a big bill in, on the national level, um, but I think it'll also happen on a state-by-state state level. And that's the same way that a lot of these issues shift. So mm-hmm. that's the same way that you know, gay rights uh, shifted. Now in all 50 states, it's legal. gay marriage is legal. And that didn't start from the top down. It started in a few states and then everyone else followed suit. So um, when it comes to money and politics and campaign finance reform, Alaska right now is the best state for uh, reform because um, Alaska has so many, so much natural resources and so few people and they value their natural natural resources so much, they have um, put forward statewide legislation that makes campaign com- contributions very limited um, because they realize that it would be so easy for a corporation to go in there and buy up all the p- politicians and then start you know, drilling Alaska. Right. Uh, so there is... Um, this organization equal citizens and they have a uh they have litigation happening right now in alaska to try and spread that model out to other states um so you know it's a very unsexy topic unfortunately and i'm doing my best to understand it and be able to relay it in simple terms but i think that if all of us learned a little bit more about how money in politics works as well as got involved with equal citizens, because they're actually up to date on the uh, current initiatives that are happening. Because I think it's not enough just to be like, oh shit, we're screwed. But now there are some bills that are being passed and we should really get behind these and get passionate about them. Whether or not you're Democrat or Republican, because I don't know any Republicans who think that um, the fact that corporations have bought our democracy is that's that that's a good thing, right? Right. It comes from their side, though. Well, I think that you you have um, candidates like Mitch McConnell, the um, Senate Majority Leader, who has done more than pretty much any other politician to allow for money in politics, um, and you have a lot of these right wing think tanks that over the past decade or two have put a lot of investment in shaping the system so that they could be have these very well-financed elections um, and win that way. So, yeah, I think that, like, you know, it's um, the way that it was explained to me was that... Um, you know, if you sh- if you change the rules of the game, like if you shift the three point line um, in basketball back a little ways, 
probably the Golden State Warriors are going to have an advantage for a little bit. But if it makes the whole game more fair, you should still be doing that. Um, and you know what? There are big uh, Democratic left-wing uh, super PACs that are also trying to get their agendas across. Yeah, and we don't hear about that so much. You don't hear about it as much, but they, but it is there. I, I don't absolve Democrats of any of like all responsibility for this. You just have more established... Um, more established super PACs on the right wing. And, and I think that a lot of, as I said, like a lot of what, uh, corporations want is, uh, a lack of regulation, right? So they can just kind of run amok and they don't have to pay that bill when they shift the burden over to society. Um, so I, so that, you know, some people might say that, Hey, that's okay. That's more right wing, but, I know a lot of uh, conservative hunters that still love the environment. I know a lot of, you know, there's still conservatives that like being able to drink clean water. Like these should not be um, partisan issues, right? These are American issues. (sighs) So that's what I'm I'm trying to make funny with the motherfucker awards. Yeah. And yeah, you're doing a really great job of that. Super cool. Thanks. Um, so you're off on this Nat Geo expedition, mm-hmm. um, and then back to Tahiti. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then I come back to Portland for a couple of days, and then uh, go to Tahiti for a, a good long stint. I got pearls to pull out, which is exciting. Sweet. Um, and uh, that'll see me through uh, through 2020. Amazing. Well, uh, I would love to come visit you out in Tahiti. And where can people get in touch with you? Where can people learn more about uh, the business? Um, so Kamoka Pearl, uh, on Instagram, K-A-M-O-K-A Pearl. Um, and just my personal Instagram, Josh Humbert. Sweet. Yeah. Dude, this was such a blast. Any last words? Um, yeah, I do have last word, um, for all you listeners out there, support Kyle. He's, uh, he's doing a really, a really good thing and, uh, he's, uh, he's looking embarrassed now, but, um, uh, support him. I paid him to say that. So That's right. thanks. Uh, appreciate it, man. This was a blast. Absolutely. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Submarine Submachine by a band known as Return to Nagoya. And I will link to their band page in the show notes below. If you are a musician and you want to send me some tunes, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send those voice memos, the one that you heard at the beginning. Um, Just let me know who you are, where you're listening from, maybe some details about your surroundings and uh, what you're up to right now. Try and keep it under a minute or so, and I'd love to play it at the beginning of the podcast. So you can just record that on the Voice Memos app on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf. And once again, thank you very, very much to Douglas for donating this week on Patreon. Uh, If any of you can spare a few bucks a month, head over to my website, kyle.surf. And finally, uh, I now do a weekly email where I send out a short story that I write because um, I'm looking to improve my writing. And this last week, I actually got, I got a lot of feedback on it. And one guy even wrote back with edits on my story. And they were really solid edits. So uh, thank you very much uh, for, for doing that. And um, I'm always looking to become a better writer. So uh, any, any feedback I can get on my writing is like just invaluable to me so you can head over to my website kyle.surf if you would would like to get those short stories from me that will be delivered to your inbox every single week and with that hope y'all have a great day and i bring you return to nagoya